thought I'd uh, take you on another little journey, keeping you uh, on the inside of what goes on in between podcast episodes, and uh, just actually shared the first episode of my new alternative parenting series, so look forward to hearing what you think of it. Now I am heading to an interesting appointment, which I thought I'd share with you, because quite a personal thing and I don't think it's talked about very much so I'm going to have a pelvic floor examination sorry guys if this isn't quite what you're expecting me to say just speaking slightly slowly as I'm walking past people before I go into the detail of what I'm about to tell you so before I had a baby. My pelvic floor wasn't as great as it possibly could have been. But you know, I used to train and run and jump and do all those things that you do. Uh, however, <laughs> didn't think they wanted to hear my conversation. Since having a baby and since trying to do the exercises that you're recommended, my pelvic floor hasn't been great. And it's been making me quite sad. Of don't want to be having to wear protection, let's say, all the time. So, I found out about the Chalton Health Hub where I've come to, where a lovely lady called Katie does pelvic floor checks. And I'm hoping to have a little chat with her as well because I think that women need to know more about this that there are people that can check, like how you're doing and whether you need a bit more support. So, let's see what goes on. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Hi. Nice Katie. Come on in. Come on. My name is Katie Sirrett. I'm a physiotherapist. I've been a physiotherapist for over 20 years, previously working with massaging rugby players' thighs, and then suddenly, upon having my own children, got a lot more interested in women's health. So I do a lot of work with women who are either exercising and having pelvic floor problems, sometimes without having had children. I do a lot of postnatal work, so sort of like a, an MOT, a postnatal MOT. And then I'm finding I have quite a big group of women who come and see me on their, in their third age, when they get a big changes in the pelvic floor again, when they have a big change in hormones again. So yeah, covering a big range of stuff, trying to support women at all stages of their fitness and development, really. Because we've just, we've, we've, we've had our um, time together and the exercises that you've given me are things that I kind of knew about and you've explained them much more thoroughly. But I, unless somebody had told me that somebody like you existed, I would just have thought it was something that I had to deal with. I've Googled the odd thing. Weirdly, something popped up on my Facebook that was of some woman claiming to have this series of exercises that I could follow if I you know, joined a list and yeah. they never did. But do you think that we are guilty of not addressing this? Yeah, yeah. I think for a long time it was a bit... Nobody talked about it because it was a bit taboo and quite personal and it can be sometimes a bit embarrassing if things have happened in somewhere that you feel pretty uncomfortable um, and then I think maybe we started talking about it a bit more as a bit of a joke of all oh, of course you wet yourself you've had a baby or you know you're old or whatever and actually now I hope we're moving into that next phase where we go well actually for the most women that I see we can do something about it and my biggest fear is that women either reduce what they want to do exercise wise or fitness wise because 
they're too worried about having an accident or um or that they're in, you know, for a lot of women, I do see quite a lot of women who've got a lot of pain in that area. And again, that's another whole kind of taboo area. We tolerate so much pain yeah, down there, don't we? I know. And it's such a, for me, it's a big emotional area of your body. It's massively connected to stresses and strains and what happens to your postnatally particularly, but also ongoing from that for a lot of women. I think there is a big push, I suppose probably from women's health physios predominantly, saying you know, actually, we could do a lot with the most women straight, you know, quite quickly. And I think maybe it's getting that message out even just to GPs. I have a lot of women who come and see me and seek me out where they've been to see the GP because everything's felt different. And the GP will just say, oh, you've had a prolapse. Don't lift anything. And oh, don't do high impact exercise. Well, that's just really scary because that, that rules out you know, quite what, big parts Don't of lift your, your child. Don't lift you're shopping don't, I mean even if you don't want to go to the gym and do weights lifting is life you know so a lot of my our job is hopefully reassurance and that probably your insides aren't going to fall out <laughs> tomorrow but getting people back on an even keel where they feel confident about looking after themselves so yeah maybe it's just us getting that word out that there is often a lot of things we can do Hopefully. Because I wanted to talk to you about it, not just, as you said at the start, it's not just women coming to you that have had children, it's women that are exercising yeah. and, and are finding that you know they have issues. And you've shown me an app, an NHS app, yeah. which I was delighted to find, but is that not something that GPs are recommending? Yeah, I would hope so. And I'm, you know, maybe some of them might be getting that out there. But I still think they are more likely to say, oh, if you're very, very severe, we'll get you in to see the surgeon. Or we'll just say, well, just be careful, rather than actually something as simple as that, which is not particularly expensive to download. You can get a little programme, you can set it up yourself, really. Mm. I mean, a bit of guidance from a physio is probably helpful, but actually then that's your two, three times a day notification to remind you to do your pelvic floor exercises, which for most women will be enough to make sure they get back on track, really. And are there many physios specialising in women's health? Quite a lot. So there's, you know, there's really good NHS departments, you know, at most of the hospitals in this area. And I don't think the waiting list is too long. I think what tends to happen is sometimes you'll go and have one appointment, then there's often a bit of a wait before you go and see them again, which I think some women feel a little bit waiting and getting a bit nervous in between time. Um, and then there's quite a lot of, you know, people working in private practice, um, similar to myself, mm. really. So it's worth always, you know, going and searching people out. Yeah. Most people will have then, you know, information on their website about what they do and what their area of interest is. Um, I feel really empowered just knowing that having you checked me, saying it wasn't awful, <laughs> um, because it, as I had said to you and as I was saying when I was walking here, it has been getting me down a bit. Yeah. And it's something that I now feel that... It's not the end of the world. Yeah, I can sort it. Yeah, and and it's not going to take very long. I will That's hopefully it. see yes. you know some improvement. Yeah. you know, and it's like a muscle, like any muscle, the pelvic yeah. floor. It takes a little while. So you know, I would always say, go away, give it some time, work on the other bits and bobs that we talked about as well. But say for most people, it's knowing and just having that bit of confidence to do it, like we talked about during the session. Pelvic floor is though that hidden muscle. Mm. So when you're strengthening it, you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm doing it. You can't mm. see it. You mm. can't, you know, see an increase in bulk like you would do in your biceps. Um, so I think, so having the confidence to know that you're doing it right and we've got your technique nailed, 
gives you a bit more confidence and makes you feel a bit more empowered about doing them hopefully yeah excellent well i was gonna say i'll keep you posted but i (laughs) I will um i will go away and do my homework thank you certain things needed when you're going to listen to a podcast rather on the move so you're in full get to work walk dog get to the gym mode or you're able to have a cup of tea or whatever your hot drink of choice is so if it is the latter enjoy and welcome to another episode of the fertility podcast episode 169 i always want to snigger when i say the word 69 it's very immature bit of an interesting introduction to this episode. If that's thrown you a bit, my apologies. I don't mean to do that at all. Just wanted to share with you something that had gone on in my world. And I get that if you maybe aren't at the point where that issue I just talked about was entirely relevant, that might have been a bit odd. But please give me that bit of artistic license because I know that for some of you, it will be of interest and do let me know. You can get in touch with me on the usual social channels at Fertility Poddy on Twitter and Instagram. The Fertility Podcast has a page just called that. And you can email me, Natalie, at thefertilitypodcast.com. Before I share this latest episode with you, I've got two new sponsors for this podcast who I wanted to tell you a little bit about right now. This podcast is sponsored by International Andrology, who specialise in diagnosing and treating male infertility. Around 50% of infertility issues are male factor, and all too often, men aren't even evaluated at the start of a fertility journey, which might result in unnecessary treatments, costs, and disappointment. International Andrology is one of the few specialist clinics in the UK, offering a holistic approach to increase your chances to conceive naturally or via the IVF route. As well as treating the underlying causes of male infertility, their doctors have some of the highest success rates in microsurgical sperm retrieval. So, if you're looking for a true specialist to assist you on your fertility journey, visit london-andrology.co.uk today and do mention the Fertility Podcast. Bud Fertility Supplements have been created to support you in your pursuit of parenthood. Whether you're just starting out or have been trying to conceive for a while, Bud's innovative vegan formulas contain adaptogens, minerals and vitamins proven to support vital aspects of reproductive health and function. Go to littlebud.com and use the code FP20 to receive 20% off your order. So go forth and multiply. So this episode is all about understanding all the legal implications if you are looking to have your family with a third party involved. It's quite a lot of information because I wanted to do like lots of different touch points for you to then go and find out more information. And I would of course put links to Lois, who's the lawyer that you're going to hear from, and her firm and uh, one of the brilliant pie charts that I refer to in the show notes. And I must just add that I was chatting with Lois on her phone, which is not normally how I record podcast episodes. So sometimes the quality isn't quite how I'd like it. Slight disclaimer there, but still a lot of really useful information to come. Katie, who you heard earlier, details will be in there too. And I will also put anything else that I think of relevance in the show notes. So listen to the end to make sure you get the details of how you can find that. And 
before I start this episode with you, if you can rate and review what you've heard, what you think of this podcast on your favourite podcast app, or even on Facebook, it makes such a difference to help other people know that this, hey, this is like a difficult topic, but this is worth listening to. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for any time you can take doing that. Right, let's get on with it. So I'm now going to welcome Lois Langton, who's head of family at Howard Kennedy, a law firm. And the reason I want to talk with Lois in this alternative parenting series is to talk about the kind of legal framework of the decisions that you're going to be making if you are thinking of having a third party in how you make your family. So Lois, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. We met at the Fertility Show and I was like dumbfounded by this amazing jumper that you had on, this bright, crazy green jumper with I think a kind of fierce looking lion. And I was like, I have to talk to you and say hello. It's actually a leopard with a stiletto in its mouth. Talk about an impact sweatshirt. And I was struck by how far from a lawyer you looked, which instantly drew me to you. And it was wrong for me to assume that lawyers always look like they're suited and booted. But I was really chuffed to be able to talk to you about this aspect of when people are embarking on an alternative family because there's so much to consider isn't there and do you find that when people go down this route they think about the legalities too late that's precisely the issue that we see and i understand it um it's a very difficult time for many people who are looking to start a family and often there's a they're overwhelmed by information and advice they receive And legal advice is often something that falls down the pecking order in terms of things to think. Um, But what, in how experience, we find is that taking some basic, simple legal advice early on can actually help you on the fertility journey because we can identify very simple steps that can be taken that actually make the whole process much simpler and can avoid difficulties and conflicts and hefty legal costs further down the path. I thought I'd pick five of the things because you've got some really concise literature and I will of course point people to your website at the end of this episode and you've got these brilliant leaflets that I know you've worked hard to to make this information consumable because like you say it's overwhelming anyway when you're going down the fertility route and then to add in this extra factor of all these things you have to consider so as a starting point if for example you're using a surrogate I know that one of the pieces of advice you talk about is using a single surrogate do you want to just elaborate on that yes so as many people will um, be aware the commissioning parents at the outset have no legal status with regard to the child and because of the situation with English law where surrogacy isn't properly regulated and we don't have commercial surrogacy we are effectively relying on a position of trust between the surrogate and the commissioning parents. Now, if the surrogate is married, then the surrogate's spouse, whether it's um, a same-sex or an opposite-sex marriage, will, by default, be the second legal parent, even though that person may have no biological um, connection with the child whatsoever. If you have a single surrogate, there is no married spouse there, and so the biological sperm um, donor will then be the the second legal parent and what is important in a situation where you are relying on trust is that you have not only that biological biological connection to the child but also the legal connection so by identifying a surrogate 
who is single and not married, there is for the, the, the commissioning father both the biological and legal status at the outset. So if you find a situation where a surrogate changes her mind um, when, when the child is born, whilst without the consent of the surrogate you won't be able to obtain a parental order, you will at least have the, the commissioning father in the status of having a legal connection to the child. And that can be hugely important in then looking at your alternative options to surrogacy, such as adoption and child arrangements orders. Because of all the things that I want to ask Lois, we're not going to be going through the finite detail of if you are going along the surrogacy route, what the legal advice you need uh, would be, because I haven't got that much of Lois's time. But like I say, I will signpost you to how you can ask for more information at the end of this episode. So another thing to consider is if you're going abroad for treatment, whether it be using a surrogate or a donor, because of immigration issues. So just talk to me a bit about the things that people possibly don't think about so we work very closely with our immigration team here who also specialist interest and knowledge in facility law issues so whilst i am not an immigration lawyer what they frequently see again is that a couple will go overseas to look for their treatment so whether that is the surrogate or whether that is some other form of fertility treatment and then look to bring baby back into the uk and haven't given any consideration to the immigration issues that they may face so, for example, with having a child through surrogacy, if you are using a surrogate overseas in a jurisdiction where commercial surrogacy is permitted and where the commissioning parents are recognised as the legal parents, you have a conflict between the two countries because you will have England that recognises the, the surrogate as the legal parent and not the commissioning parents. And in the overseas jurisdiction, you'll have a system that recognises the commissioning parents as the legal parents and not the surrogate. So a commissioning couple will try and bring the baby back into England. And as far as English law is concerned, they have no status whatsoever in relation to that child. And inevitably, you can imagine that creates huge issues from an immigration point of view because it looks as though they're just trying to bring back a baby with whom they have no connection. The last thing that commissioning parents want when the baby's just been born and they should be happy times is to spend hours in immigration rooms at the airports taking legal advice, immediately trying to get legal steps taken to be able to bring the baby just back into England so that the whole process can then start to apply for the parental order. And having that advice early on can deal with many of those issues by having that immigration input at the outset that when you are ready to come back into the UK, the process is as simple as possible. Because on that, there aren't internationally recognised fertility laws, are there? So it's, as you've just been describing, each to their own. So that forward planning, because there's this whole issue with the time it takes when you're applying for a parental order, isn't there? It's quite a lengthy process. It can be a lengthy process. And that's exactly the point you've just made, that there are no international conventions on surrogacy. Countries around the world all have... Um, different rules that apply. So there are some countries where commercial surrogacy is permitted. There are other others where it is completely outlawed. And there are countries which sit somewhere in the middle, such as England, which doesn't permit commercial surrogacy but does allow altruistic surrogacy. So recent expenses can be paid. And that lack of an international convention means that you can go from one country to another without any uniformity as to what the process is. And that that's what creates the problems. 
I mean, it sounds like an absolute minefield and to try and embark on these types of decisions without any legal advice seems absolutely insane. But you obviously see couples and individuals doing it and then, what, coming to you in crisis? Coming to us and we see a variety of issues. So if we're going taking a situation with surrogacy, we have seen situations where only one of three problems. So one may be the surrogate has changed her mind and doesn't want to hand the baby over to the commissioning parents. And because we only have altruistic surrogacy in England and the, the surrogate is the legal birth mother, there is no obligation on her to do so. So without the consent of the surrogate, there can be no parental order transferring the legal status from the surrogate to the, the commissioning parents. So that's one issue um, that we frequently see. Um, I mentioned there's the issue of um, bringing baby back into the, the country. That's another issue that we frequently see. Um, we see issues when, when parents, commissioning parents go abroad um, where we're only allowed to have reasonable expenses, go somewhere like California where ca- commercial surrogacy is permitted and significant ex- monies will be paid to a surrogate for her to carry a child for them. And you see an agreement you know, if she has one child, there'll be X pounds paid. Um, if there's twins, there's a bonus payment, triplet, you know, even more. Right. And that is at odds with English law, which on the face of it, our legislation does not permit that to happen. And so what you then find is that as part of the surrogacy process, you're having to get retrospective sanction from the courts in England for there to be a parental order, notwithstanding the fact that these expenses, clearly above reasonable expenses, have been paid. Um, what we see is by and large the courts do sanction it because otherwise what do they do there's a there's a child in limbo but there's there's no certainty with it and it it prolongs the the legal process for the the commissioning parents because there have to be the explanations around what has happened why these sums of money have been paid why it's not in keeping with english law around recent expenses and so it just adds extra layers of bureaucracy to the whole process and as I say, no one really wants to be doing that because a baby's been born. It's the it's the culmination of a journey that many people have been on. And the last thing they want to be engaging in is multiple meetings with lawyers, multiple visits to the courts, having to do statements. Really what we want to be doing is trying to minimise that as much as possible for them. Now, if you are planning on having treatment in the UK through a clinic, whether it's surrogate or using a donor, so there's a clinic involved, there is quite a lot to consider with regards to the consent, isn't there? The the the, the, the paperwork that you're, you're needing to have covered. And am I right in saying that you have had issue with the wrong paperwork being signed? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a minefield. And so I'm not surprised that errors are made. Probably, I think I gave to you, we have flowcharts in trying to look at identifying who the legal parents are, who the biological parents are, and what forms have to be signed to make sure the right person ends up being the legal parent. Yeah, and they're and, actually you know, amazingly kind of straightforward to follow, which I'm sure took quite a long time to... To, to make to look simple because there's a lot as we've just been saying to consider with them yes absolutely we have seen situations where the individuals who were intended to be the legal parents aren't because someone hasn't understood correctly what form needs to be signed and the, the wrong people end up being identified as the legal parents and then somebody who was intended to be a legal parent but isn't so maybe a biological parent has to use other options to secure parental responsibility and status with regard to the child and that obviously then has huge knock-on effects in terms of disputes in the future arguments about 
the roles that everybody's, everyone's going to play in a child's life. That idea that the wrong paperwork is being issued by the clinics when you're assuming that you could trust them in doing their side of the kind of deal correctly, I mean, surely that's just adding even more stress. Yes, it's not always the clinics, in fairness. It can be the individuals who perhaps haven't accurately conveyed what it is that they're wanting because they haven't actually properly thought about the issues or haven't taken legal advice to understand who's going to be the legal parent and who's going to be the biological parent. And we talk to, to many people, not just those who are perhaps going through this process, um, because people are just generally interested in it. Everyone has a family and a family life. And so these are, are topics which are of general interest to the public. And we find that those we talk to find uh, uh, incredulous at the idea that the distinctions between legal parents and biological parents and how many people with the title parents a child can actually have in yes. his or her life and the distinctions that have to be made to many people you know the nuclear family of mum and dad being both legal and biological parents is is all that they used to and the changing landscape with regard to family units and how people can can start their families and have their families is still quite a new concept to, to many um, in the wider world and it, it's going to take some getting used to the, the different concepts that we now have. Well that moves us on really nicely actually to the next area that I want to talk with you about which is the idea of co-parenting and you again talk about conception agreements and there's a lot to think about here with regards to I don't want to say logistics, but how it will all pan out. And you talk about the importance of, again, kind of writing this all down really early on to be exactly clear as to what everybody's intentions are, don't you? It is so important. And this actually is probably the issue that we see most often. Again, at the outset, everyone's focus is on having a child and and fulfilling a long wish. Um, And what we see are that the intentions are often very different from the parties involved and we see it quite frequently with same-sex couples looking to have a child together. Um, one party, so the biological mother, may view the, the biological father as no more than a sperm donor and he may view himself as being a father who is going to have an active role in the child's life and nobody seems to frequently iron these issues out um, early on until the child is born and then the issues come to light where one party may be trying to, to limit access by the, the other parent to the child. And it's only at that point that you see the issues arise. And again, we've seen cases where there have been years of conflict over whether a parent should be seeing a child or not. Now, if you've got those sorts of different objectives in mind, a conception agreement would have ironed them out. And it's so important that when people are looking to embark on this journey, they are working together with someone who has got the same objectives as they have. So this idea of this document, it's not, is it legally binding? It's not legally binding, but what it does is capture intentions and evidentially that can be very useful. Because some of the things to consider, for example, are the payment for the child's upkeep, who's going to have access, where the child's going to live. And do you find that people are caught up in the, uh, the excitement of making the baby rather than bringing up the child? That's absolutely what we see. And the, the, you know, there's so many issues to think about having a child, you know, where the child will live 
and will care be shared between the parents? If so, how practically will that work? Who's going to be named on the birth certificate? What surname will the child take? What first name will the, will the child have? What religion will the child be brought up in? What school will the child go to? Decisions about medical treatments, you know, how birthdays are going to be celebrated, Mother's Day, Father's Day. There's so many issues to think about with having a child. And if those issues were thought about at the outset, so much dispute and conflict could be avoided later on, which ultimately, I'm sure most people agree, is never going to be in the interest of a child to have the two people who have brought him or her into the world in disagreement about how the child should be brought up. And all too often, a whole load of those things that you just mentioned could very easily be overlooked, which is why coming to someone like yourself, who's almost got that list, that checklist to, to run through with people, it just takes that stress away, doesn't it? Yeah. And as I say, it also identifies if the discussions around what should go into the conception agreement identify that actually you have very different outlooks on life, that you're, you're viewing each other as having different roles in that child's life. Well, then it is better to identify that at the outset and look to have a child with someone where your views, values, principles are more aligned. That ultimately is going to be better in the long run for everybody involved, the child and both parents. Yeah, exactly. I want to move on to, and I'm aware that we're moving through a whole lot of information here, but I do want to move on to if you're at the stage where you're thinking of adopting and just talk a bit about what you need to do because there are a whole number of steps regarding whether you're going to adopt in this country or you're going to look to do it internationally so Lois if people are at that stage where adoption is something they have been thinking long and hard about and it's now just what are the practical next steps to take what what would you start off by advising? This may seem really obvious doing homework um, thinking very seriously about um where you want to adopt a child from, what the issues can be, the cultural issues, the, the practical issues of perhaps adopting a child from overseas, um, thinking about some of the practical considerations of adopting a child who is older and has perhaps had a traumatic start to life. People need to go into adoption with their eyes wide open and really making sure adoption is the right answer for you. What we are seeing, though, is that with increasing options available for IVF treatments both here and overseas and the costs being driven down, particularly as a result of overseas IVF treatment, that is having a knock-on effect on adoption and the numbers are really significantly down on where they were a few years ago. And that is not helped either by the fact that the adoption process is, as with so many other areas of fertility law in general, um, is is not really fit for purpose in 21st century Britain. It's a slow process, it's cumbersome, and so it really takes commitment to be going down that process. Because this is my understanding. I mean, I've got some friends who have been looking into adopting for some time now, and it just seems that they're constantly being met with red tape whereas the other day I had a conversation with somebody who adopted a, a good while ago now like say 10 years and they seem to have quite a straightforward process so there's not the consistency. Yeah, you're absolutely right and we, I mean, we see it as well in step-parent adoptions which you would think on the face of it would be straightforward um, and there's the same volume of red tape as there is with any other form of adoption and you know, I had a case a few months ago where it was a step-parent adoption and the stepfather was looking to adopt his wife's son um, and that um, the, the son had been born through the sperm donor and the amount of red tape of dealing with that and the fact that there wasn't a biological father who could give consent was 
staggering from, from the courts, the extra hurdles that had to be overcome to address that, I found deeply concerning. So from the point of view of people thinking about this, whether they are able to adopt a child, there are obviously um, guidelines as to who can adopt. Can you just talk through that element so people, you'd hope that everybody can? In theory, anybody yeah. can. Um, you know, You can have well, surrogacy has in fact just caught up with this. So you can have either a single applicant for adoption or a couple can adopt. Um, and in that respect, adoption has been slightly ahead of the game in that you can have that, that single um, person adoption. You need then to have uh, either the local authority or um, an adoption agency involved. Um, there is a process to go through to make sure you are suitable for adoption. There's obviously then the matching process. And again, that's where there are some issues in terms of whether adoption agencies are considering all the options for a child rather than perhaps trying to, to match a child entirely um, with, you know, to, to match its you know ethnicity um, or its religious background. Sometimes it is better to get a child out of the system with a, a family who are willing and able to to care for that child and, and to bring the child up as their own um, but there's that process to go through and then once there has been um, the matching and the assessments have been done and the legal process is, is ready to make the application for adoption you've then got that whole long-winded um, adoption process with you know, various statements and hearings that have to, to be gone through. And in your experience is the process the same for a straight couple and a same-sex couple? I did one of the first adoption cases shortly after civil partnerships were introduced it didn't elongate the process the courts were it was slightly like an exam question for them in terms of how to to deal with it because they i think it seems a little alien to them at the time but we have moved on from that and the process in terms of duration as far as i'm concerned is is no more difficult for a same-sex couple as it is for an opposite sex couple that's good to hear and as far as an adoption order can you just explain what that means so an adoption order as with a parental order on surrogacy transfers the legal parentage um, from the birth parents to the adopting couple. Um, so as far as the law is concerned, the adopting couple are then the legal parents of the, the child. So not the biological parents, but the legal parents. And the the legal status of the biological parents is then extinguished entirely. So they then have the biological parents then have no rights or responsibilities with regard to the child and the adopting couple have full parental responsibility, full parental status, and all the rights and responsibilities that go with that. And can you just explain it to me, because I've heard about this before and I've been quite confused by it, the issue that can happen when a parental order isn't granted and the child then gets placed on the adoption list. Is that right? So adoption can become a possibility if a parental order isn't granted. So a parental order can only be issued if the surrogate consents to it so if the surrogate changes her mind and says i want to keep baby um whether or not she has a biological connection to the child at the point of birth she is the legal parent as well as the the birth parent albeit not the biological parent so if she withholds her consent the commissioning parents who may have you know going to have one of them is going to have a biological connection at least to the child they cannot pursue a parental order so the commissioning parents then have to look at alternative options. One of them is adoption. Um, so the application then is to the court. One of us is connected biologically to the child. The intention was that this child would be brought up by us as the legal parents. 
we can't court apply for a parental order, so we would like an adoption order instead. That has happened in the past, not with any huge amount of frequency, but it is the, the alternative if a parental order can't be granted. And it's again why <clears throat> excuse me, it is so important to have um, as much evidence at the outset with the, the surrogate as possible to evidence that the commissioning parents were intended to be the legal parents. I mean, the key takeaway <laughs> from all of this is there's so much that could go wrong. You kind of want to prepare for every eventuality at the start, don't you? Absolutely. And having some basic, simple advice early on can save a huge amount of money, can save a huge amount of time and a huge amount of emotional trauma. Lois, thank you. I feel like you've guided me through that really well. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but it was just, I wanted to just kind of highlight to people the different things to consider because there is a lot, isn't there? And you cover so many different scenarios and that's why ultimately I wanted to just have you explain all the different ways that things could go for people to then go, okay, well, that's probably where we're more likely to be at. So we'll go and have a chat. It, it is a minefield and the law is in desperate need of reform, but I don't think any of us are holding our breath just yet. That kind of area of it I, I know from some of the conversations that I've had with the likes of Surrogacy UK there's been some changes in the whole parental order side of things but that's taken a long time to achieve hasn't it yeah I mean the introduction only just this month of a single parent being allowed to apply for a parental order so a, a single commissioning parent that has only been introduced as a result of a case in 2016 where the law was held to be incompatible with human rights legislation. So it was only that declaration that has really had the impact on the law being updated on that front. And that's still taken over two years following on from that declaration of incompatibility. And the Law Commission is reviewing the surrogacy law generally. Everyone who who assists and works um, in and around surrogacy law can can see the multiple issues that we have with it. It hasn't kept a pace with you know, the reality of how people are living their lives and building their families these days. That's one area that the Law Commission are at least focusing on it. Fertility law, as I say, is a minefield in terms of trying to work out who the legal parents are, who the biological parents are, making sure the right people end up being the legal parents. That is in desperate need of simplification um, and adoption laws we were just touching on um, is far too convoluted and particularly with the, the opening up of IVF treatments, particularly overseas and being um, more affordable, adoption law really needs to be simplified if we are going to encourage people to to look to adoption and to get you know, the many, many children who are on um, adoption lists off those lists. That as a takeaway, we obviously don't want to um, put people off. We want to highlight that there's all these different things to consider and obviously to seek legal advice is is a very key element of what you're doing but i guess be prepared for it to be a lengthy process is the best kind of overall advice would that be wise to say be prepared for a lengthy process but but understanding your position legally at the outset can in certain circumstances reduce that process and make okay. it more straightforward okay the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash understanding family law and i know there was a lot of information there please do have a look at the show notes to maybe guide you towards talking more about some of the things that are on your mind getting guidance from lois or somebody like her who can help you and of course you can get in touch with me um, if Katie, the physio that I went to, is somebody that could help you or that type of thing is something that has been bothering you, again, do ask for help. I've put that NHS app, uh, details of it anyway, that Katie told me about uh, in this 
in the show notes too. And something else that I wanted to make sure was on your radar is the Ultimate Fertility Guide, which is a directory I've been creating, bringing all different bits of the fertility industry into one listings guide. And what I'm doing with the people that I'm bringing into the guide is I'm doing little video interviews with them, which you can see on the guide or on the Fertility Podcast YouTube page, where I'm constantly adding more and more content for you if you like watching video as well as listening to audio. So do go and check that out as well. Now, the next story I'm sharing as part of this alternative parenting season is a same-sex parenting story. Lovely lady called Jo talks me through what went on with her and her partner, Jane, and and the issues they had to overcome, which, considering what you've just heard about, is particularly relevant. So, look forward to sharing that with you, and until the next time.